Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn, push the boundaries of your knowledge, and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com website, our Patreon page. Even if it's just a buck, it keeps this advertisement free and subscribing. Today we are joined by Dr. Shania Pandya. She is an instructor, EVA 101 Wilderness and Space Medicine at Project Possum. She is a co-founder of Civil Guard, a singularity university in Silicon Valley startup based out of NASA's Ames that deals with basically crisis situations. Some intense stuff. I mean, we'll kind of get into a little bit of that. She's a graduate of International Space Singularity University, backgrounds in neuroscience, medicine, published author, award winner of the 2009 AS Tech Leader of Tomorrow Award. Some of the key things that she's an expert on are, you know, medicine, technology, innovation, leadership. And in this episode, we get into how to build yourself in the right way, how she's doing it and how she's noticed other people do that and uh, what separates like the average Joe from someone who gets to go to space. And uh, she will probably go into space soon. TBD on that. But let's get into this. The first thing is that you're basically a neurosurgeon a soon-to-be astronaut, you're an instructor, you're a, you're a doctor, you know, of course, with the neurosurgeon. Um, no, wait, wait, you're also a pilot, you speak several languages. So I'm kind of curious, just so people don't think you're you're so awesome, is there anything that you struggle with or that, like, you're bad at? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, so to clarify, I used to train in neurosurgery, and then I switched over to general practice. So I'm licensed as a general practitioner in Canada and um, I, the surgery bug never really left me so I'm completing a fellowship in something called enhanced surgical skills and also in the midst of a fellowship in uh, wilderness medicine um, and then one step away from my pilot's license so um, just a couple of quick clarifications there <laughs> um, so you, you asked about what you know Am I, am I naturally good at everything? And the answer is heck no. Um, I, you know, you see people and everything they do comes easily and you're like, how is that possible? And my brother's one of those people, like he's a neurologist and he just reads something once and he will ace it. To give you an example, we both took the same high level advanced organic chemistry class in undergrad and he started studying the night before the final, um, reading the textbook and got a hundred percent on the exam. So that's mm-hmm. him for me, everything I've ever done, I've had to work really hard at whether that's school or martial arts or flying a plane or skydiving. It's never, it's rarely gone right the first time. Um, I I'm extremely persistent and I think that's probably what's gotten me to where I am today, along with being surrounded by really good supportive people and teams. Mm-hmm. Which is which is good. Like I think sometimes people think that when they see people in the news or like that are doing really cool things, they think that they were somehow like born that way. And it's like no, they they struggle a lot. There's like a a really neat quote. I they always put Yoda underneath it, but I don't think it was Yoda. Which is like the difference between a master at something like someone's a master at it and someone who is just beginning is that the master has failed thousands of times more. 
Well, just a, and a good point about that. I think one of, and this is something that's been said oftentimes, um, and a common myth about success is that it comes overnight and, you know, it didn't require hard work, but it's also been said time and time again, like you just, you don't see all of that under the surface all the times it took to fail, all the lessons learned, all the steps backward. And you ask any astronaut, any athlete, any surgeon, we've all had to make mistakes. Um, and I think the other part about that that's less mentioned is that um, there's this perception that if you fail once, you're a failure for life, or if you succeed once, you succeed for life. Um, and so you see that oftentimes in media where, you know, someone wins the Grand Slam or they win the Stanley Cup and then they go quiescent for a couple of years and it's like, okay, well, they're, you know, they've washed up, they've been washed up or they're in retirement. And no, success success and failure go and come in waves. And, you know, just because you have a really good year, one year doesn't mean it's guaranteed to repeat itself the next year. You have to work really hard for that. Or you have to accept that maybe it's a time for a break or to go back behind the scenes and work, work on the next big thing. Um, so I think that's really important insight to have when it comes to looking at successful people in the public eye. Is there, have you had a failure that later became like the kernel of you being successful? like the next success because you used it as like a catalyst? Any good examples like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I actually have an entire TED talk on this. Um, so when I was training in neurosurgery, it was my life. Like I lived at the hospital. I loved it. Um, you know, you'd be at the hospital at 5.15 in the morning. Um, some days you wouldn't leave there for 40 hours straight. Um, you Or you could be there till 9 or 11 p.m. at night. Um, and that was just the nature of the work, but I loved it. Um, and deciding to leave was a really hard decision. Um, and oftentimes I thought to myself, you know, the only other thing I love this much is space. And the only other thing I would love to do is to be an astronaut. Um, and there were no opportunities at that time. There was no Canadian selection going on. So it was kind of a leap of faith leaving. And then this whole citizen scientist astronaut business just fortuitously um, popped up within the same year. And it was it was lucky. Um so, you know, it, it, it not having an, a next plan or a next vine to swing to, definitely um, I felt like a failure at the time. And, you know, a lot of close people, a, a lot of friends and family close to me couldn't accept or couldn't believe how I could think that about myself. But we all have our own measures and gauges about what it means to be a success or what it means to be a failure. And I think it's really important to come to terms with the fact that at the end of the day, your harshest critic and your harshest judge, but also the person who needs to uh, love you the most is yourself. It kind of reminds me a book, like whenever I, I talk about these things, I remember, I'm reminded of a book called A Man's Search for Meaning by Victory Frankel. I'm not sure if you read it. It's, it's pretty good, but it's, it's basically this this guy goes through Auschwitz and like how he finds meaning in that. And I think it's interesting if like he can find some positives in that horrific experience. Like I always think like, like you can pretty much find meaning in anything, but in a good way, you know, like not like you're like making up meaning to like make yourself feel better, but like there's actually things there if you're like, keep your eyes open to it. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I completely, completely identify with this, um, with what you're saying. Um, so uh, we took um, an honors literature class when I was in high school. Um, I took one, I should say. Uh, and we read this book called a, Day in the Life of Ivan Dinosevich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it was kind of a true-to-life, semi-autobiographical um, uh, tome about Solzhenitsyn's time in the Gulag during, I believe it was the Stalin era. 
and you know how you said the wrong thing and you ended up in the gulag and it really described the conditions of being in these these work camps and having to work with your bare hands in minus 30 conditions in the middle of nowhere in Russia and um, the main character Denosovich is having this Ivan Denosovich is having this really bad day you know he's getting extra he's getting rations taken away from him he's getting extra time in solitary and then he just stops in the middle of the day and he just looks at his hands while he's doing this hard labor and there's this really powerful line um, to paraphrase that just sticks with me to this day that he still had his hands and because despite all he'd been through he still had his hands and he could work and that meant something because that gave him value. Um, so what you're saying about giving yourself meaning, whether you're in times of severe adversity uh, or success, like you have to find your own meaning and you have to define your own sense of self-worth. No, I love that. Did you did you by chance read it in Russian? Because I think you, you speak you speak Russian, right? Yeah, no, I, I speak a uh, very beginner basic Russian. Uh, I read it in English, um, although it would be uh, adverse to revisiting it in Russian at some point so i'm curious when it comes to space did you have any like science fiction books or tv shows or anything like that that inspired you to really love the love it oh gosh um i mean i grew up loving space from the outset um and this like growing up in the 90s you know you would hear of the canadian astronauts everyone from roberta bondar to julie pet to steve mclean and of course um our favorite chris hatfield um, and, you know, just seeing what they would do, it was very, very inspiring. Um, as from a science fiction standpoint, I definitely read all of the 2001, 2010, 2061, 3001 series by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, and my favorite um, uh, movie of all time, and I know it's not a popular one, and I don't care, I will defend it to the end, uh, is Independence Day. I was 10 when that came out and I've watched it upwards of 20 times since. And you know that I loved that movie. I still do. It's a good movie. I don't know why people would be mean to it. It's like, it's, it's, it's solid. Like it's a little, it is solid. It's yeah. silly, but it's solid. I mean, if you look at the sequel, <laughs> the sequel is silly. The, the original one's really good. You know what? I still enjoyed the sequel just because I loved the original so much that it brought back fond memories for me watching watching the sequel. Um, so yeah, I just a huge fan of Independence Day. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be Will Smith in that movie. Well, I mean, you're pretty close. You know, you got almost yeah. a pilot license, and then you just gotta wait for an alien armada to show up, and then yeah. it'll be like your time. Hopefully, it never comes to that. But if, if it happens, I'll be ready. I'll mm-hmm. be. I'll be. Joining, um, joining the battle. Yeah, I know who I'll call. I'll be like, well, I don't know. I'm not the general guy, so I don't know why. I, I wouldn't be the one making the call. But um, so I, I believe you're also uh, an instructor for for wilderness survival and space medicine. And I was just curious, what is space medicine? Yeah, sure. So um, I am an instructor for EVA 101. Um, it stands for Extravehicular Activity. Um, 101, and this is one of the courses offered by the Citizen Scientist Project Possum that I'm involved with. So Possum is Polar Suborbital Sciences um, of the Upper Mesosphere, and the mandate of the project has since um, expanded. So we're looking at orbital and um, 
for uh, more more space uh, focused missions as well. So, given my medicine, my background in medicine and space medicine, wilderness medicine, um, the uh, the founders of Possum uh, asked me to throw to put together a course. So, space medicine. When you initially hear the term for the uninitiated, it sounds like two disparate things. Like space is one thing and medicine is another. And how could it possibly? be a thing. But then when you consider that we have manned missions and long duration missions and space in a nutshell is trying to kill you with the hostile environment of the microgravity, um, radiation, high noise, uh, disrupted circadian rhythms, there's a whole lot of research um, and prehab and rehab and post, uh, sorry, pre-in-flight and post-flight um, uh mitigation that needs to go on so every single system uh for example is a is affected by the microgravity environment so uh, we tend to lose bone density in space we get fluid shifts because there's no longer gravity pulling blood to our legs so that in turn um, shifts upwards to our heart so our heart's working harder um uh, the fluid also shifts up to our head, which has implications for increased pressure within the brain and the ocular systems. Um, we uh, we uh, have disrupted circadian rhythms. We're tra- trapped in a in a tin can for days with an entire crew for months, and even in some cases, an entire year. Um, so you have to look at um, you know things you can do to mitigate um, any possible conflict that will occur um, in close quarters. So space medicine um, is a is a field unto itself. And then where wilderness medicine comes into play is um, both space and the wilderness um, are environments where you have you're remote and you're resource limited. And in certain cases, you have to think like a medical MacGyver and really use whatever resources are at your disposal to treat the situation at hand. And you also have to make a decision with whatever skills um, you have, with whatever severity of injury or um, pathology you're dealing with. Um, to make a decision of go or no go. Do we end the mission and do we evacuate? Can we evacuate? Um, or can we treat this here and um, continue with the mission? So that's um, what our course is all about. Uh, we treat, we go through principles of um, triage in remote and resource limited situations, go through a lot of simulations and then also treat, teach principles behind space physiology and operational space med- medicine. When are you going up? I think it, it was 2018, but... Yeah, so um, as to um, when there will be opportunities to fly, that initial date was based on um, flying with X-Core links, which is now defunct, unfortunately. Um, not to say that there's not other potential opportunities to fly in the future with other suborbital brands. Um, as of yet, we have no uh, announcements for flights. Um, so to be determined is the short answer. Are there, cause you're, you're, you're probably pretty up on like all the different space agencies and what they're working on. Are there yeah. any of them that are, are, that you're like particularly like, Oh wow, I really like what they're doing. Are we talking about private space, um, companies or like public space agencies or. Oh, any like, of them. Yeah. If you, any, any favorites. I think I think the general consensus and certainly my own opinion when it comes to space exploration is everyone's welcome. Um, It is such it is such a big space to explore. There's so much to be explored. There's so many ways of getting there. Um, But anyone who wants to with a viable plan, make a plan for getting to space. 
Um, and, you know, every time SpaceX has a successful launch, anytime NASA announces a new mission, anytime the Canadian Space Agency has a new selection, it's exciting. It's, uh, it's another foray into space. So um, I, you know, any, any, any announcement of a space adventure um, is regardless of what sector it comes from is exciting to me. But no favorites or do you just like you like everything you're hearing? <laughs> no favorites. Um, I am partial to the Canadian Space Agency being Canadian. Um, but then again, I have worked at ESA. I have worked at NASA. And those were some of the best experiences of my life. Um, so I, I don't think I can pick a favorite. <laughs> That's all right. As long as they, you know, they put you on the next one. This is one of the like the the big bigger question I was curious about because you work with some of the best people out there and we talked about previously about like how discipline comes into that. So I'm curious, like how can, like what separates people who, you know, get an MD are pushing themselves to be an astronaut, you know, pilot's license, you know, someone like you and the people you work with, like what, what do you think the difference between someone like you and a regular person is? And it, perhaps it's the first thing we talked about, which was you, you don't, you know, stop at a failure, you keep going. But I'm just curious, like, have you noticed any other things that? That's, you know, that's such a great question. Um, and I'm smiling right now because, uh, first of all, I think I am a regular person. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm any different than anyone else. But um, one thing I do do a bit differently is that I'm ridiculously persistent. Um, and part of that, I think an important um, topic to talk about when it comes to success is persistence and perseverance and grit and resilience. Um, and resilience is a really favorite topic of mine to talk about because I think it's equally important when you're successful to keep you going and to make plans to keep being successful and also to teach yourself to bounce back and learn from your mistakes rather than accepting defeat uh, when you fail. Um, and I, I mean, reading around resilience is, is fascinating. I love doing it. Um, and just learning how it can be a learned trait and breaking it down to components, um, like surrounding yourself by good people, breaking down big tasks into smaller tasks, talking to yourself um, positively, using mental rehearsal um, to talk through all this, um, and then controlling those impulses to give up. Um, just looking at those key components are super, super fascinating. Um, and I think, I think, um, if we were to look at maybe why I've had a different path than, for example, the, the average, um, usual path for someone in my demographic, um, maybe resilience is a part of it. You can train yourself or like you can build resilience. Have you, sure. so like a kind of a two part question, like, are there resources that you'd recommend people read or how would you suggest people kind of like build the, that, that skill set? I think if you want to build resilience yourself. There's a lot of great books and resources out there. Um, and writ by Angela Duckworth. She's a psychologist whose um, field of knowledge and experience focuses on this is a great book. Um, looking at these key components and looking at what you can do differently. Um, so again, looking at your social circles and social support, looking at how you talk to yourself in crisis situations, looking at whether you break things down or not, um, looking at whether you can control that urge or that impulse to give into negative thoughts and the urge to give up, um, and just mentally rehearsing. Those are all really important things. And then also finding things that inspire you. And, um, for me, it's a bit of a funny story of how I learned about resilience. Um, because again, all of this, this fascination, um, 
started with leaving neurosurgery and feeling like I was at the bottom of my game. Um, and then the continuation into studying psychological resilience uh, came when I was looking at it as a protective and predictive factor in long duration space flight. Um, and what I studied to gain further knowledge of this was, in fact, the special operations community and Navy SEALs. Um, and it was just it was a really fortuitous bout of how that came along, because one of the other things I thought I would do, um, maybe when leaving neurosurgery, was join the military and be a doc. And um, that's kind of when I had this aha moment. I just randomly had a chat with someone who told me about Canadian Special Forces, um, specifically the JTF-2 um, or Joint Task Force 2, which is um, Canada's answer to SEAL Team 6. And it was just this aha moment because in my mind, like most of us, I thought it was, you know, in the realm of Tom Clancy novels or, um, you know, Medal of Honor video games or something like that. And then it was like, oh, okay, this, this is real. Um, and so hearing about that just fascinated me. And so I, I read everything I could on the topic and listened to every podcast I could. Um, and it occurred to me that there was a special breed of person for whom, uh, who took their work as seriously as I did and for whom um, dealing with life and death, more so in death, death than life, um, as opposed to life with a, with a doctor, being a doctor, um, it really resonated with me. Um, and the, the interesting part about studying um, this group of people is that the predictors of who will make it through the selection school, um, the BUDS um, school, which is basic underwater demolition school, which any SEAL candidate has to go through and pass to become a Navy SEAL, the biggest predict predictor of that is resilience. And so candidates have to take something called the computerized special operations resilience test or the CSORT test. And when you look at predictors of who passes um, BUD school um, versus who doesn't, it's the most resilient. So you can be, you know, a college athlete, you can be at the top of your game, you can be super smart, but if you give up easily, um, those mornings in the cold water, they'll, that'll be what takes you out. Um, so that was what really, um, for me, that's something I really identified with, even if it's a demographic I'm not a part of, um, and really inspired me. Um, and so that's how I studied resilience. And so I think the takeaway there for anyone who's learning to, wanting to learn about resilience is knowing the key components and maybe seeing how they apply to your life or even finding a special demographic of people, whether it's, you know, the super successful or athletes or in my case, special operations and seeing how that motivates you. Resilience is a predictor of getting through it, but the people who get through it, do you think the discipline helps, like the exercise, because they do a lot of like a lot of really intense things during the training. Do you think that makes them like levels up their resilience? So like they have like that base level to get through it, but like through all those practices, they get even more resilient. And if so, like what are some like exercise things that you would encourage people to do? If that is oh, like a helpful thing. For sure. That's such a great question. Discipline is a huge part of it. And when I was a kid, um, I'm laughing here because my dad would always say discipline is the most important thing you could learn. And you're like, okay, whatever, dad, I'm sure it's the most important thing that I could learn. Um, and it's really funny because one of my favorite podcasts is by a former Navy SEAL called uh, named Jocko Willink. Um, and his motto is discipline equals freedom. And he, you know, attributes every aspect of his success as a Navy SEAL to discipline. And he actually has a book called 
the Discipline Equals Freedom field manual, which you and I were talking about before this podcast, um, and how I posted some quotes from it on my social media. Um, And for me, it took a really long time to really understand what discipline equals freedom means. And once I started thinking of it in terms of discipline equals results, um, it really resonated with me. Um, And to give you a real life example, uh, in 2016, when I was gearing up to make myself as competitive as possible for the Canadian astronaut selection, um, looking at all of the things that would make me more competitive as a candidate, from getting more flying hours to getting my solo skydiving um, certification to getting added uh, scuba certifications um, in a year where I was training to write my medical licensing exams and training for the World Cup in Taekwondo. Um, I realized that all of this was possible and the reason I wasn't getting what I wanted to done was because I wasn't being disciplined enough. And for me, applying that meant I could get all of that done. I was able to get my um, accelerated free fall and skydiving. I got my medical licensing. I competed at the World Cup of Taekwondo in Budapest. I got my solo um, first solo flight in as a pilot. Um, I got rescue diving and nitrox diving certifications. Um, so it's, it's possible to do all of that um, when you take something that resonates with you and then apply it to your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the short answer of how and why discipline is so important. And then if, if, you're, if you're thinking it would be interesting to your viewers, we can talk about specific tips and tricks that um, help engineer discipline into your life. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I know I'd be very interested. And so like, I'm kind of like the listener right now as well. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So for me, I have this ongoing list of things that make, um, you know, discipline easier because it's never easy. Um, and I think a huge thing is engineering discipline into your life. So, for example, um, I have little scrawny beanpole arms, and for the life of me, I could never do a pull-up in my life. And then one month, I was just like, I would like to be able to do a pull-up. And so what I did was I um, made a plan for myself to be able to do a pull-up, and it started with those pull-up machines at the gym that allow you to offset your weight. And so you can really you can take off some of your body weight and then um, gradually engineer yourself off, wean yourself off the offloading to be able to do a full pull-up. And so over the course of a month, I gradually took off more and more weight until I was able to do a single pull-up. And then after that, it wasn't just a one-off thing. Like I wanted to keep being able to do that. So um, I bought a I borrowed my brother's pull-up machine first, and then I bought my own, and I installed it above the door of my bathroom. So it was kind of like a toll booth that every time I wanted to go into my restroom, I would have to do pull-ups. Um, and so that means now um, I can do pull-ups, um, and I can do up to 50 um, over a couple of sets. So um, by breaking things down and by engineering discipline into my environment, um, you know, I was able to achieve that goal. Um, another example is when I really want to focus or when I really want to study, um, the phone goes on a different level of my house. So if I'm tempted to go check my notifications, I physically have to get up and I'm less likely to do that. Um, and I think the other part of it is not being overwhelmed. Um, this comes to breaking things down. So like making a list of, you know, immediate term, short term, medium term and long term goals, like knowing where you eventually want to go. But then what needs to be done today for it to be a good day? Um, so to-do lists really and checkboxes really um, run my life. Um, 
And the flip side of that is realizing that there is a season to everything. So, you know, people say, how do you speak Russian and Gujarati and French and English while skydiving and operating and doing all this crazy stuff while doing the space stuff and flying zero G? And the short answer is I'm not doing all of that in a single day. Like, even if you have a star varsity player in high school who's on the soccer team and volleyball and baseball and um, basketball, there's a season for everything. They're not training full time all the time you know there might be times of overlap when they have to prioritize and choose but soccer season is totally different than um volleyball season so i think that's a really important thing when it comes to maintaining the perspective how do you differentiate like motivation from discipline when i think a lot of times people try to find motivation when i think maybe discipline should be the thing that they're working on if that makes sense so like how would how would you how would you, I guess, how would you motivate yourself to find more discipline? Or like, how would you think about the difference between the two? You know, quoting from the book that we talked about earlier from Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL, he says it doesn't matter. Like, you just shut up and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my addendum to that is you have to engineer discipline into your into your life. So, for example, with the gym, wherever I'm living, I move around a lot, but I always try to make it so that the gym is between where I work and home. So I have to drive by the gym before I go home and I can't drive by the gym and not go into it. Um, I don't have junk food in my house. If I'm doing something that's indulgent, like watching a movie or eating out or going for dessert or ice cream, it's in the context of a social visit. And the the trade-off is that I'm being social and enjoying my, you know, good friend's company um, at the expense of calories or, you know, uh, free time. Um, so that's that would be my addendum is that you have to um, give yourself constraints to operate in and also physically engineer the discipline into your environment. You mentioned it a little bit, but I'm curious, like when you're not building yourself to be excellent like what what do you do for fun because you know uh, ice cream like if it's just you i guess maybe it's not just you you hang out with people maybe like what yeah what do you do for fun so i really love martial arts um it's always been a big part of my life i've been doing taekwondo for over half my life now i'm a second degree black belt have been fighting at competitive levels um muay thai is another big thing i've trained in thailand at fight camps for the past three years Um, A lot of that is on hiatus for now while I'm finishing my fellowship. Um, But just, you know, physical, physical activity. Um, I believe I really believe there's merit to the word physical therapy. Uh, For me, you know, um, I was having a discussion with a good friend about this. She loves going to the group exercise classes and, you know, just socializing and pushing herself. For me, the gym is my let loose time. I, I put on my my headphones and that is my place to push hard and sweat and just run out, run out my, my stress and my loosen up those muscles. Um, and that's not to say I don't, don't relax. I, I definitely have a soft spot for shows like the Simpsons or Futurama. Um, definitely those are favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I do do normal people stuff despite, despite what the public conception is. Mm-hmm. Have you watched the TV show Expanse by chance? I haven't. Um, the most recent 
um, space show I saw was called Final Space. It's a new um, show on Netflix. Um, my brother recommended it to me, and I also happened to discover it in the same day. And it's um, really a worthy successor to Futurama, so I really recommend that one. Is it animated like Futurama? Or? It is. It is animated, yeah. I'm going to check that out tonight. I hope it's available in the States. Um, I really, really recommend it. Um, for me, this is the other thing when it comes to engineering discipline. Like I, So many people have recommended Breaking Bad to me, but I don't want to have a show where I feel compelled to keep watching um, because there's a story arc. I want something that's short and entertaining and there, there may not necessarily be continuity um, between episodes because I don't want addicted to a show um, so it's a uh, it's funny to have a psychological strategy when it comes to watching Netflix or animated shows um, but that's that's part of the reason I, I love the animated genre and part of it's the humor and the the ridiculousness of it all you might like Rick and Morty then it's kind of oh god yeah Rick and, <laughs> I love Rick and Morty Archer um, definitely it gives you a sense of my uh, sense of humor if it's if it's really witty and funny and there's obscure references uh, Rick and Morty is definitely very well written there's been shows where I've uh, you know had my mind blown um, by by certain episodes I like it for the exact same reason the there though the fan base is kind of kind of intense like, I don't know if you follow, like, what the fans do, but they were, like, uh, when he did the Szechuan sauce, he, there was, I like, heard about that. Yeah. yeah, that was, that was crazy. Yeah, they brought back this, the, this, McDonald's brought McDonald's it back. McDonald's Szechuan sauce, yeah, yeah. and they, then they ran out, and then there was, um, chaos ensued. Yeah, there's, like, people, like, jumping on tables and screaming, which, you well, know. I didn't hear about that part. That's, that is intense. Yeah, they have videos of it. Yeah, it was just like they were just like screaming where's the chef one saw. It's like like calm calm down people. Like it's just it's just you know, it's just flavoring. But um Oh, I don't I don't know if we should go on the record saying that. We uh <laughs> we might get called out for that. <laughs> yeah. It, that's probably true. I'm kind of picturing your day as like extremely productive where you get up at like with the sun and you're like you kind of keep going and you, like build momentum throughout your day and then you kind of end your day feeling like you achieved everything you're supposed to achieve but is there any is there any like relaxing time or are, is it like once you're you're up like you you do try to like keep keep building momentum for the other, throughout the day if that makes sense what i find with my productivity is that i follow newton's three laws of motion in that an object at rest stays at rest and an object in motion stays in motion um and so when i'm on a productive streak and i'm ticking things off on my to-do list i tend to continue that streak because it feels so good to be productive and then when i fall into a lull you know you really have to get that activation energy going again trying to find a catalyst to reduce that activation energy and get the momentum going. Um, so I, I think knowing that about myself, when I when I am productive, I really try to keep that going. Um, but the other thing I've learned is that it's not wrong to take breaks. And that's a, a relatively recent lesson that maybe I've learned and started indulging in, in the past year. And residency really teaches that to you. Um, and they say when you start residency, eat when you can, sleep when you can, um, study when you can. And definitely that's true because you never know know what kind of day you're going to have, what's going to walk into the door, when you're going to be called into OR, when a delivery is going to happen. Um, and so we had this chaotic night a couple of days ago where, you know, something rolled in at 2 a.m. And then we just 
kept having deliveries and getting called back to the OR and having C-sections that were unplanned. Um, and we didn't sleep at all. And, you know, we thought I went home at the end of that day, crawled into bed at 4am and thought I could sleep, but then just things kept happening. Um, but that meant the next night I definitely slept really well. Um, and so what, um, what I'm trying to say is that it's not wrong to take a break. Um, and it, I know there's a lot of people who know me well who are screaming at their at their audio device right now, saying that's what we've been trying to tell you. Um, but it's it's good. It's okay to have some reserve. Um, you know, I, I used to really temper my sleep, um, and you know, average five hours and forty minutes a night. Now I'm experimenting with getting more sleep because I don't know what's going to happen the next day, and I don't know um, if I'm going to have to be up at three a.m operating or delivering a baby and I want to be sharp um, if that happens um, or sometimes when I find if I come home and just you know have a rest and just lie down for 20 minutes um, not necessarily sleeping that means I actually feel like I'm behind the curve um, I feel like I'm in a fight and there's 30 seconds left and I'm down two points. And that means when I get going again, I'm more likely to, well, I'm not more like, no, I know that I'm um, raring to get going again. It's to start getting things done on the, on the to-do list again. Um, so what I'm trying to say is there's nothing wrong with taking a break sometimes if you know it's going to make you more productive. Is there a way to like metrically test how much sleep you're 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 supposed to get like on a personal level? Because I know there's like averages and stuff, but I'm always curious like to find like that optimal performance. Is it like as yeah, as a doctor, maybe you'd know better. I think everyone's a bit different, um, and I think my takeaway is sleep consistency matters more than the amount you sleep. And so, for example. Um, when I was training in surgical subspecialties and I'd have to get up at 4.15 every day, I was getting up at 4.15 every single day. And my brain became attuned to that and I was up before my alarm just because the consistency was so important. Um, and so I think that's um, if you're accustomed to seven hours or nine hours or five hours, um, as long as you're consistently getting that. And um, what will help that out is having the same sleep time and wake time every single day. Um, and you'll find you're getting up before your alarm um, because otherwise you're kind of just messing with your REM cycles um, and your brain doesn't know when to shorten them, when to lengthen them. Um, and so on the flip side of that, you know, if when I've been up for 24 hours, uh, on call and I crawl into bed, you know, for an hour, it feels like I've slept for six hours just because, um, you know, I'm, I'm so exhausted. And I'm trying to cram in at least one REM cycle in there. Um, but really sleep consistency is, I can't stress that enough. Um, and it's, uh, part of, uh, part of, uh, an important thing to talk about when talking about sleep consistency is sleep hygiene. So not keeping um, disruptive things in the bedroom. I know we all keep our phones and our screens in our bedroom. Um, but if you're going to do that, at least keep a, a blue light filter so you're not um, disrupting your circadian rhythm. Touching back on this idea that you sometimes will get like these mad rushes of not, not being able to sleep in, until like the next day because you're working so hard at the being a doctor. Is there is there any like diminished returns on like how... Like, if you're, like, 100% at the beginning, I would think that after, by the end of it, you'd be, like, at, like, 60% or something at, like, your mental acuity. So, it's, like, isn't that, like, how do, how do doctors balance that? 
when you're trying to like take care of a lot of people and make sure that they survive, but at the same time yeah. you need to take care of yourself and ensure that you're not like re- reducing below a threshold where you're. You, you know, know, and for sure, I definitely hear a lot of concern from um, the general public and patients who are like, "Well, you know, I wouldn't want my doctor operating on me um, if I'd known they've been up for 24 hours." And certainly, I can understand that. Um, and it's not certainly not by choice. Sometimes it's by necessity. I mean, especially if you're in a community where you're the only one on call with that skill set. Uh, and the option is no treatment versus um, a doctor, tired doctor. Um, I know which one I would pick. And I think the other part of it comes down to training and repetition and doing things over and over again. And the reason we have residencies that are so long um, is because we need to have that muscle memory. We need to have that these things down by rote um, to be able to know how to deal with these situations. Um, and so I think that's that's one part of it. And then just knowing knowing ourselves and knowing how we react. So when, when I was a third year medical student, one of the staff orthopedic surgeons always told us, uh, told us that if it was past 11 p.m., she would always get someone to double check her order set, even if it was a third year medical student, because she knew she got tired. Um, for me, I know what keeps me tired, what gives me a second wind, what keeps me going. Um, and I use those things to, to keep going. And then sometimes, sometimes it's just a matter of sleep when you can. So if it's been a nonstop evening and you know, you have 20 minutes between yourself and the next door, the next delivery, um, maybe I'm going to put my feet up and power nap if it's three or 4 AM. So, so there's lots of tips and tricks, um, to help yourself deal under, um, duress and sleep deprivation. I was going to ask maybe for a book recommendation, but at the same time, I don't know if you'd want to propagate people experimenting with sleep deprivation and then seeing how well they would perform <laughs> underneath it, like in an amateur setting. It's like, oh, I have, I have not slept in three days. I'm now going to drive 1,000 miles and see how that works out. All right, just, um, but. Uh, <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do that. That's what I was thinking. Stay yeah. up all night. So, and I mean, there's definitely a safety component that does come into play. Um, so there have been times when I've been running around all night and driving home from the hospital where I've pulled over and taken a power nap by the road because I knew I wasn't safe to drive even on a 20 minute drive. Um, and so when you're doing things that are active, like operating and you're the primary surgeon, um, you do stay awake. Um, doesn't mean I'm not falling asleep while dictating afterwards, um, dictating the operation. Um, and so you have to decide what needs to be done now and what can wait until morning, like a dictation. Um, you have to make your priorities. Um, and then you have to build safety checks into your, um, into your practice because sleep deprivation is an ideal and it's, it's something, you know, that's just part of life, whether you're a doctor or whether even if you're a parent, anyone who's a parent out there will identify. And how can you, how can you build, um, safety nets into your, into your practice? So sometimes it comes down to checklists and um, you were asking about a book recommendation. So the checklist manifesto by Atul Gawande really talks about that and how important checklists have been um, in transforming the the surgical world and how we borrowed heavily on aviation, um, which actually does enforce rest limits for pilots because they can do that. Um, and then also relying on your team. Um, uh, you know, despite, like I was saying, despite your best efforts, sometimes you just can't help being awake. Um, and that's when your team comes to save you. And I'll give you an example. There was a time when, um, I was on a 40 hour stretch of call and it was 3am and I was doing a delivery 
and I was exhausted and the senior nurses picked up on that and they just they just started talking to me to keep me engaged and they just said oh you know what's your where are you going afterwards what's your what's your life plan and it was just a simple thing like just picking a way to engage me um, that really helped and so you know sometimes despite your best efforts to um, to be at your best you really need a good team to help you out with that so speaking about where you're where you're going I, I assume you're about my age so like you have probably like at least three more times your age now left on the planet depending on a number of demographic uh, features but I'm always curious like where where do you see yourself going like where do you want to be going and like oh, yeah because you have like so much time but I think it's like a question like a lot of people don't wonder about because they like rush through things a lot so I'm always curious like especially with someone who's as a high achieving as you are you building towards something or are you building oh, towards gosh, yeah. yeah I, I have so many so many things on my to-do list um definitely space is up there and um you know keeping everything um all the momentum all the skill sets keeping to build up on any skill sets i've had um working as hard as i possibly can to make that a reality and also support any efforts i can to make space more accessible continuing my research into um space medicine psychological resilience reproduction in space all of that stuff um keeping my work going and expanding on my work with space and wilderness and remote medicine um uh with project possum um definitely there's more analog work i want to do i'd like to go to antarctica um and i think i think maybe um it can all best be summed up by some things that um i've learned through skydiving and um piloting and uh i I got my when, when i got my solo skydiving license my instructor sat down with me and he said training never stops and safety never stops and in the same week my pilot um instru- my piloting instructor who's very good he said um you know a pilot's a private pilot's license is just an excuse to start to learn um even with, with medicine we call it practice because we're always learning and the evidence is always changing um so i've started upon all these wonderful engaging incredible skill sets when it comes to medicine and surgery and space and aviation um and exploration and i would love to um build on them even more so there's always piloting uh, designations and um skydiving certifications to be had there's always more to more science to be done in space there's always new evidence and practice changing things in medicine um so definitely i have a lot of things that that still remain to be done well it's gonna be kind of nice to be able to like get in a plane and like four hours later be pretty much that'd be really really far away like i think four hours in a car you can only get maybe maybe 200 to 300 miles away but in a plane you could get pretty far away because you go like 300 miles an hour Depending on the plane, I suppose. I don't I'm know. If, the, yeah. 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 So I don't know if, if you ever like thought like recreationally, like that would be some nice benefits. Like people are like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? It's like, oh, I was down in uh, Mexico, you know, <laughs> just flew down for fun. But um, there's but, definitely, um, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Um, no, there's definitely physicians out there who combine that skill set and use their skill set as pilots and as physicians to fly to remote communities and do day clinics up there. And I even know a handful of them. So definitely worlds can collide in that respect. Since we kind of talked about longevity a little bit a minute ago, I'm actually working on a, a series where we talk about longevity with like the, the leading experts, which has led me to continually ask this question where if you could take anyone present or in the past and kind of give them longevity, essentially making them immortal. 
but like that's not what people are doing nowadays but just to simplify the question and it can't be anyone you love who would you, what are three people you would give it to and and why oh gosh you know that's such a, a tough question because as people as amazing um as there are people there are out there who have done wonderful things for humanity when we talk about immortality and longevity um the caveat or the question that i haven't heard answered um to my satisfaction yet is yes certainly we can um increase our lifespan but what do we do about the human capacity to learn because it certainly changes from generation to generation and so looking at what a tv remote looked like when you and i were kids and had five buttons on it compared to what it looks like today um and how you know how fancy it is um my best friend said in jest that once her kid hits 10 years old he's going to be teaching her everything there is to know about technology and internet accessibility um and that's why it's important to have new generations because the technology and the adaptation to that technology and the learning curve changes um so i need to see the argument addressed of how do we how are we planning for the human capacity to learn um to change if we're talking about immortality because if you take um someone from the 1900s and transplant them to this day and age and then ask them to pick up on things certainly you have your you know your rock star scientists who are immensely curious um you know you have your einsteins um and niels bohrs and and the like who could certainly demonstrate that capacity for learning but how do we how do we embed that if we're planning to um have people around for longer mm-hmm. um but to answer your question oh gosh um it's hard to say because um definitely einstein da vinci would be up there because we've just we've immortalized them and we've canonized them and you know they can do no wrong but there's people out there doing really really amazing things that I'm inspired by who are much younger than me. You look at Malala Yousafzai, the Nobel Prize laureate, and she was shot in the head at 15 and she didn't give up. She just went and made that her platform to ensure that women and children and girls across the world have um easy access to learning. You look at the Parkland school survivors and they decided not they didn't want to be victims of gun violence, but they wanted to use their platforms as 15-year-olds to change the conversation on gun violence. And that's incredibly inspiring. Um and it's a two-way, you know, two-way inspirational street because you look at kids like that and say, "Okay, well, I'm twice their age. What have I what have I done to make the world a better place?" So, um certainly we can talk about making people immortal, but I think the conversation needs to be equally about helping people realize their their capacity to contribute to society in a meaningful way regardless of their age or station or experience um if they have a genuine desire to have a meaningful conversation and make meaningful change all good points but you're still missing the last one though yeah you, you got two two people but just like a thought exercise really more than anything i'll say i would say um einstein malala and let's go with da vinci I like I like Einstein. He's a little like he's almost world breaking though. Like he's like one of those guys that like I think if if he was given more time, he, we'd probably have such a like an, an intense understanding of the universe. Like it'd be really interesting to see what he does. Yeah, no, I always agree with him that one. Einstein's like he's like the guy, which it's it's funny that we always picture him with like this kooky hair. But when he was younger, he was he's was, he's was very like han- a very handsome man. He's well kept. <laughs> yeah, it was only in the end where he like they assigned him someone who would uh, kind of make sure he ate and stuff because he would just duct tape his shoes on and just like go to work because he, he was just like, yeah, I have all this to do. 
And he was just, like very laser focused about it. Not like can people follow along because you have a, you have a great website. It looks better than mine. The, but is there something you would love to leave people with in the sense like maybe a book recommendation or something that they should think about to make the best use of their abilities or like to realign themselves with their their uh, inner ambitions perhaps? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think maybe this this kind of builds up off of what we were just talking about that. Um, you need to realize that regardless of how old or young you think you're, how little or how much experience you think you have, you have you have something to contribute and that it's never too late to um, follow what it is that you're passionate about. You just have to seek to be um, the best at what you do. Work, Be prepared to work really, really, really hard. Be resilient. Be persistent. Um, and just remember that you've got this um, and that if you have a passion, you have a mission, the world is full of amazing people Um or rooting for you to succeed. Um, in my experiences, in my travels, I've found that people are inherently good and that they just want to help you. Um, and I think that 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 is what gives me hope for the world. And I think that's what should give each of us hope. I think there's like this that belief that a lot of people are negative, but I think it's like only one in twenty, one in twenty, like one in plus twenty, I think, that are psychopaths. So I mean, like. That's a pr- like 19 out of 20 is pretty good. I mean, just just saying like that's actually quite small. Um, I like to leave it on your note of, of positivity versus like uh, compulsively wondering if the 20th person you met is a psychopath. I, I would say um, to to add to that is that things aren't inherently good or inherently bad. Being a sociopath and just hear me out here doesn't make you inherently bad. It means wired in a certain way to process empathy differently and relate to empathy differently but the research in recent years has changed and we all we've all heard of the concept of the high functioning sociopath and there's CEOs and politicians and and uh, surgeons out there who would qualify as psychopaths or sociopaths but they just are wired differently and they're still contributing to society differently mm-hmm. um, so being a sociopath in and of itself, doesn't mean you're inherently good or bad. It mm-hmm. just requires the insight to realize that you're wired differently and are motivated differently, but still can um, contribute to society meaningfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we, you know, there's always, always capacity for good, regardless of where you look in the world, regardless if you're a psychopath or not, <laughs> you can still make good in the world. And that was Dr. Shana Pandya a doctor in a medical sense, not just a PhD sense, working to become an astronaut. And among other things, we got into how to build discipline, where you want to be, like basically how to achieve your ambitions and uh, a sense of who she is at the same time. So if you like this type of content, let me know and I'll keep doing it. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell was here, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.